0: If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com.
1: Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content, listener discretion is advised.
0: In this week's episode of Murder in the Rain, we have a special feature from our Patreon series, Welcome To, where we delve into a case from the hometown of one of our Patreon listeners. Love, a powerful emotion capable of inspiring boundless devotion, took a deadly turn in the summer of 2003. Sandy Razzo, a bartender from Pinellas Park, Florida, fell victim to the dark side of love when she was brutally murdered in her own home. Join us as we dive into Sandy's story and how love, obsession, devotion, and control ultimately took her life. In this very special Patreon episode, we're getting back to basics. We're boarding the Murder in the Rain Express and heading to another one of our Patreon members' hometowns to dig up a case. This week, we're visiting Stephanie in Pinellas Park, Florida. Now, I've been to Florida several times, most of which have been with Alicia but I can honestly say I've never heard of Pinellas Park. So I was really excited to do a little bit of research and learn about a new place I might want to visit. Pinellas Park is smack dab in the middle of Pinellas County, which sits on the central western coastline of Florida and is directly to the west of Tampa. The entire county is a peninsula. In fact, it's 280 square miles. So if you want to visualize that, On the west side of the peninsula of the state of Florida is another smaller peninsula that juts out and houses the cities of St. Petersburg, Pinellas Park, Clearwater, and Largo. And to the east of that is the Bay of Tampa, and the east of that is Tampa. It's a cool little geographic area with lots of bridges. No squirrel bridges, but it's cool just the same. I think we might need to go. In 1911, the city of Pinellas Park was founded by a Philadelphia publisher named F.A. Davis, and it was incorporated in October of 1914. Davis actually created a company called the Florida Association, and he began creating model farms all over Pinellas Park to sell. Most of these farms grew sugarcane. He also built a landmark named Colony House, which was designed to lend rich folks a place to stay for social gatherings, as well as a place to do business. Today, the population is just over 53,000 people. And if you Google, I don't know, what is Pinellas Park known for, it would return, quote, popular equestrian facilities and events. So horse shows, arenas and barns. A few more links down, you'll learn that there are lots of things to do if you visit beautiful waters, the Wagon Wheel Flea Market and the Tampa Bay Automobile Museum, where you can see pristine vehicles from 100 years ago. The Pinellas Trail is a 50-mile path that stretches from St. Petersburg in the south all the way up to Tarpon Springs in the north, and it's perfect for bike riders, walkers, and runners. There are parks to fish and swim at, and the Dolly Museum so you can see the work of Salvador Dali. On my personal list of things I want to see is the Sunken Gardens. The gardens were started in 1903 by a plumber-slash-gardener named George Turner. He had purchased six acres, which happened to be under sea level. So he had to drain it. And then he started planting exotic fruits like papaya and citrus trees. 17 years later, it became a nursery and it sold plants and fruit for about a nickel. And then 15 more years, they decided to monetize it further and started charging admission. And in the 1950s, it became a commercial attraction and it is still popular to this day. It was sold for $2.3 million, I think in the early 2000s by that family, that original family. Wow! And while I didn't find anything weird in the area, no squirrel bridges like I mentioned, there are really cool things to do in Pinellas Park and the nearby towns. Overall, it looks like a great little vacation spot or a place to settle down in. But let's check on the crime situation. In terms of violent crime, it's not much worse than much of the U.S. It's on the lower end of average. More specifically, your chances of becoming a victim of violent crime in the state of Florida are 1 in 255, whereas Pinellas Park, it's a little bit better at 1 in 283. That all being said, our case today was pretty shocking to me. I've never heard of it, but after learning the details of it, I was surprised I've never heard of it. And I'm also kind of surprised it didn't pop up when I googled what is Pinellas Park known for. Some of you might know it if you're like a big fan of Snapped. They apparently did an episode on it, and I think a couple of other true crime shows did as well. This case not only fulfills the Welcome To series, it also dabbles in killer couples. So today I'd like to share the case of the murder of Sandra Razo. On July 5th, 2003, Tony Ponical was home alone waiting for his girlfriend. She was a bartender and worked pretty late. Typically, she would come home at some point late in the night and climb into bed. Though they had spent the past two years together and had been living together for a few months, their relationship could be described as atypical. Sandy, as most called her, wasn't in love with Tony, but she felt very safe with him. In fact, they actually had separate bedrooms in the townhouse they shared together. Her past was a little bit of a nightmare when it came to her exes, so she was happy to just feel safe and secure in her relationship, even if it wasn't filled with the fireworks people like to talk about. The night of the fifth, Tony went to bed just after 9 p.m. and was fast asleep in his upstairs bedroom within moments. A bit later, he was startled awake by the sounds of large pops and cracks. Now, it was the day after the 4th of July, and as most of us in the U.S. know, fireworks tend to go off at night in the days bookending the holiday. But these were loud bangs, and he couldn't immediately fall back asleep. He reflected on the sounds that had just woken him up and started to realize they were much louder than you would anticipate with fireworks. They sounded like they were right outside his window. He decided to get up and head downstairs to look around. Tony made his way around the downstairs windows and the front door peephole and didn't see anything suspicious. He continued wandering around and glanced at the clock on the microwave and noted that it was 11.10 p.m. He had been asleep for about two hours. Out of habit, he opened the door in the kitchen that led to the garage and was surprised to see Sandy's car. Normally, she wouldn't be home at this hour. She would either get off later or would go out with friends after work and come home even later than that. Something else was off to him. The garage door was shut. Now that may not seem weird to us, but normally Sandy would leave it wide open and it was something she constantly forgot to do, kind of a joke in their relationship. The light of the garage was automatic and it was still on, which would indicate that Sandy had recently pulled in. So he was surprised that he didn't hear her come inside. He stopped and listened for a moment while he considered what he was seeing and thought he heard something in the garage. So he approached the car. That's when he discovered the terrifying scene around him. On the floor of the garage were shards of glass, which he was actually stepping on with his bare feet. As he examined the floor and the damage to his feet, he heard a voice ever so faintly. He looked up from the floor to find that the driver's side window of Sandy's BMW was completely shattered, thus the glass that he was stepping on. And as he peered inside the car, he saw blood everywhere, including all over the body of his girlfriend sandy who lay there tony was frantic screaming sandy's name and attempting to lift her up but eventually he snapped into action and called 911 he explained that his girlfriend came home and was still in her car the window was broken and she was bleeding and didn't seem to be breathing he was unable to wake her up tony gave his address to the operator as well as any details she asked for by 11:30 p.m., paramedics arrived to the townhouse where Sandy and Tony had lived for the past 5 months. Sandy was unresponsive but still had a faint pulse, so she was rushed by ambulance to the Bayfront Medical Center in the neighboring town St. Petersburg. She was pronounced dead at the hospital at 12:04 a.m. at the age of 37 years old. Sandy's cause of death was homicide due to gunshots from a semi-automatic 22 caliber gun. She had been shot a total of eight times, including bullets to her legs, three to her abdomen and chest, which caused fatal wounds that damaged her liver and lung. She also took a bullet to her brain. While many of the shots could have been survived, at least three would have killed her. During her autopsy, it was determined that someone had shot through the driver's side door window and hit her directly in the chest. This was obvious by the pieces of glass found in her chest wound along with the bullet. Detectives believed that Sandy had pulled into her garage, and while she prepared to exit the car, someone had followed her in on foot, pulled a gun, and shot her through the window. She tried to react and pull away, but they just kept shooting her before eventually making a quick exit out the garage door. It was described as, quote, a cold-blooded murder. Her killer stood there and fired round after round. Detectives immediately went to work trying to figure out who could have done this to Sandy. But as it turned out, it wouldn't be that hard to find a suspect. It would, however, take a bit of time to prove it. And no, it wasn't her boyfriend. He was super accommodating and immediately gave his DNA, fingerprints, you name it. And he was ruled out very quickly, which is kind of surprising since he was there alone.
1: Yeah, that's nice. You don't often uh, hear that the boyfriend's there and then he didn't do it.
0: Now it could be downplayed because of like the TV shows and the book I read for this, but yeah, I feel like I feel like they gave they gave him some attention because obviously that's right. especially knowing that um, they lived in separate bedrooms and like they interviewed her coworkers and they said, oh, you know, she wasn't all that serious about him. She may want to move out, so there was a chance that something mm. went wrong. But I think I think you'll see why mm, okay. he wasn't their focus pretty quickly. When they asked Tony if he had any idea who could have hurt Sandy, he was quick to point out that it was a man named Tracy, a man who had raped Sandy the previous year. And it wasn't just Tony either. Sandy's mom, Sandra, yeah, they're both named Sandra, was also quick to point out that it was likely a man named Tracy. Even Sandy herself blamed Tracy. And no, I don't mean she came in like ghostly form to tell the detectives, but she had actually written it down. She had an entire file on Tracy that she was using for an upcoming court date. And inside, she had handwritten a note that said, quote, If anything should ever happen to me, contact the detectives investigating the sexual battery and kidnapping case that I was involved in. This was all about a man named Tracy Humphrey, and that whole file was dedicated to him. Also inside the file, she had written down a quote that Tracy had said to her once, quote, If you go to the police and you tell anybody, I will get three crackhead N-words to come over here and rape you until you beg for death. Nice guy. So who was Tracy to Sandy? Sandy Razzo was a bartender at a popular joint called the Rocky Point Green Iguana Bar and Grill. That's a mouthful. That sounds like a Florida place. It really does. I think people just call it the Green Iguana. They're
1: like frozen Iguana beachside clubhouse
0: drink place. Florida. <laughs> so anyway, she worked there for several months and she had actually been a bartender for a really long time at other clubs prior to that. And according to one of her friends and co-workers, in June of that year, she got a subpoena at work to testify in an upcoming trial. She then told the coworker all about how a year prior, a bouncer at the club she worked at in another city had become infatuated with her. One night, he held her against her will for two days. He beat her severely and then he violently raped her. She, of course, went to the police. Now, according to him, they were in a consensual sexual relationship. But according to her, that was all in his head. She had never consented to having sex with him. They had actually gone on a few dates, but she broke it off. Tracy Humphrey was eventually arrested and Sandy packed up and moved to Pinellas Park. The trial was scheduled for August 4th, almost exactly a month after her murder. And Sandy was ready to testify against Tracy for what he did to her. He was facing 10 years for those crimes. So to police, this was a very believable reason that he might want to kill her. So all eyes were now on Tracy. As police started looking into Tracy, they had a lot of confusion, but eventually, after reading that file that Sandy had compiled, they realized his legal name was Timothy Alvin Humphrey. Timothy, or Tracy, worked at an athletic club in Brandon, Florida, just outside Tampa, as a personal trainer. He was super ripped, and this was, of course, thanks to the usage of steroids, and you know what that can do to a person.
1: I'm sure he was fine. They he didn't must have been him.
0: a real joy to hang out with. After digging around his records, police found all of the charges against him for what happened to Sandy, and they also found that he had a record of arrests for similar charges in other cases. There were several other women over the years who had a very similar story to the one that Sandy had about Tracy. He had several aliases, and each of them had assaults and petty crimes tied to them. He had been in prison before, he had abused women before, and not only did he have an ex-wife and a child, according to recent records, he had been married. I'm talking very recently, like the day before Sandy's murder, July 4th. Detectives were keen to speak to Tracy and learn about his whereabouts the night Sandy was murdered. They were all theorizing that he would have some flimsy alibi that would point in the same direction that all these other people were pointing at, that he was the one that did it. Tracy lived in another county, not the same as Sandy. Police attempted to go visit him at home, but he wasn't there, so they left a card, asked him to call him back. He did call them back, and he said, oh, come to the athletic club where I work and I'll talk to you. But of course, when they showed up, he refused to talk to them, claiming that his lawyer told him not to.
1: Also, who on earth would be like, come to my place of work? And I want to. Yeah, I would love, I'd love to be to, interviewed in front of my colleagues. See walk
0: away with the cops and be like, what was that about? That would be kind of funny, like story. But yeah, he's clearly confident. He has nothing yeah. to hide. While waiting for their chance to speak with Tracy, detectives were interviewing anyone who had had contact with him or Sandy. They learned that Tracy had basically been stalking Sandy. Him and his new girlfriend were seen at the bar she now worked at, him creepily staring at her across the room. There were weird calls made to the bar, and Sandy would tell people, just ignore them. That's Tracy trying to find out what times I work, which is very annoying. Creepy stalking aside, there would be a problem with the theory that Tracy had been the one that killed Sandy, and that was his alibi. He had one after all. It turned out he had ordered pizza at his home. Not only did the pizza delivery happen at her time of death, he had a time stamped receipt, and the pizza delivery guy remembered him. He was even able to describe his very noticeable physique to a T. So, who did he hire? <laughs> There was also another witness. Tracy's client, Toby, a woman he trained at the gym, happened to be over sharing a pizza with them. She had even interviewed with police to say as much. Here's the thing, though. Police felt like they were onto something. So they started to pick at the alibi and put Tracy's life under a microscope. Maybe you recall a few moments ago when I said that police found out Tracy had recently been married. Well, let's dig into that. Ashley Christine Laney was born in 1982 in Brandon, Florida. She did not have an easy life. Her father went to prison basically right after she was born on charges of sexual battery. Her mother, a lifelong alcoholic, wasn't able to care for her, so she sent her to live with her grandmother. Overall, she had what she needed. She went to school, got good grades, even graduating with honors, and eventually she got into college. Unfortunately, her grandmother, who was basically her only parent, died her freshman year, and Ashley took it very hard. She ended up dropping out of college, moving to Pinellas Park, and getting a job making smoothies. The shop she worked at was called Planet Smoothie, and it sat right across the street from the athletic club, the same one where Tracy Humphrey worked. Well, as the story goes, one day she found herself in the gym and met Tracy, a good-looking gym bro, 16 years her senior. Now, to Ashley, she was dating a catch. He was ripped, he could protect her, he could get her a good workout at the gym, and eventually even got her a job as a trainer at the gym. It was a fairy tale. Little did she know that Tracy had a lifelong history of arrest, and that was something he conveniently left out. The pair got serious and eventually moved in together. Tracy did eventually tell her that he was dealing with rape charges. But explain that he was innocent and that the woman, Sandy Razzo, had made false claims because she was angry that he was dating other people after breaking it off with her. We all know that's a lie.
1: How do you even bring that up with your partner? Like, hey, by the way, I am busy on Tuesday going to trial for rape.
0: <laughs> or it's like that first date on Tinder like any red flags I should know about yeah. you. <laughs> I mean he waited till she was already hooked before uh, he told and, her this. And, and that her life revolved around him. Exactly. The job, the workouts, who knows what else. He was conditioning her yeah. and as you can imagine hearing him say things like I would do anything to get out of this, this situation. Mm-hmm. Even suicide. Like that's gonna have an effect on her especially as this impressionable very young girl from the wrong side of the tracks and being so much younger than him Uh uh-huh kind of like a built-in authority yep she wanted to help him ease his pain she wanted to help solve his problems their relationship continued to grow and he eventually asked her to marry him now they didn't want to just do some gold rings on their fingers at a beach wedding no they went the extra mile what do you what do you think they did um, tattoos at Jimmy John's Sunset Beach White Sands Tattoo Parlor. Now, I don't know about that location, but they sure did get matching tattoos on their backs of each other's name in this, like... Remember that tribal font of the oh. early 2000s? Oh, and, I just have to look at the cuff on my arm to be reminded. And, and I'll post just a kidding. picture for you guys, because they're classy. <laughs> anyway, they got married on July 4th, 2003, in the... Gym where they worked. <laughs> 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 and they finished up their. The
1: smell, the sounds. Was it at least closed?
0: I hope so. I uh, but...
1: do take you, Clang. <laughs> Maybe there's clang. A, a Zumba class going on so they could get the music.
0: <laughs> That's the guy on the treadmill next to them. And to top off this fairy tale gym wedding, they had dinner at the Cheesecake Factory. Ah! So no, lucky. (laughs) No offense to Florida, but this sounds very Florida. That's like, come to Florida. It's like a
1: brochure. (laughs) We offer you a variety of weddings. It just blows my mind because there's beach everywhere. Like you could go on. But that doesn't (laughs) represent their love, Emily. That's true. They got their reps in the gymnasium of life. (laughs) I knew you would love that part. I love it so much, (laughs) especially like the West Coast peninsula off the peninsula <laughs> like we're deep we're in the gulf we're
0: deep in the in the florida what is it tampa bay oof armoire makes getting dressed easy With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderintherain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderintherain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today.
1: With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today.
0: So it seemed Tracy had an alibi at the time of the murder and a new wife. Police knew they would be able to get some nugget that would help break the case if they kept picking. They just had to find the right spot, and it wasn't going to be Tracy's wife, Ashley, because he shut that down quickly. But eventually, they figured out that that spot was going to be Toby. Toby White, the friend that was over and had pizza with them the night of the murder, told police from her own mouth that she had been there with both Tracy and Ashley all evening from 8.30 p.m. on July 5th to 12 a.m. on July 6th. Tracy's alibi was solid thanks to the third-party pizza driver, but Ashley's alibi relied solely on their friend Toby. So police got a subpoena for Toby's cell phone records. And bingo, they were able to catch Toby in a few lies by looking at the records. Now, I won't get too into the weeds here, but she essentially spoke under oath about the events of the evening, giving specific time frames where Ashley was in the home or outside the home, fights that occurred between Tracy and Ashley, basically everything she witnessed and calls that she claimed she had made to Ashley to try to convince her to come back after the fight. Well, the story she was giving with these timeframes compared to the phone records dug her in this deep hole of lies. She was clearly covering up for them. In fact, they weren't sure she was ever there. She continued to tell them the same story over and over again and all they wanted. Was for her to tell the truth. Like she was not going to get into trouble. So they eventually went to her family members and tried to convince them to convince her to come clean, basically saying the law was on her side. And eventually it worked. Toby explained that she did not have any firsthand knowledge of the murder of Sandy Razzo, but she admitted that she had lied in her witness testimony. She went on to say that Tracy never directly threatened her, but that he asked her to lie for him. She had seen him threaten Ashley and had witnessed him kind of exercise control over her all the time, even one time locking her alone in the gym to, like, prove a point. Cool. So she had witnessed enough of his behavior that she was really scared of him without direct threats. And that's why she lied and said that she was there all night, which wasn't the case. She explained that Tracy had spoken about Sandy to her, and he had claimed Sandy was a drug dealer, and he didn't kill her, but she had plenty of enemies who would. Toby said that she didn't believe Ashley knew Sandy at all. She could, however, tell them that she knew Tracy and Ashley had been at a gun range together at least twice. Eventually, police convinced Toby to wear a wire. Now, the goal was to try to get Tracy and Ashley talking about the murder. She was, of course, scared as hell. I can't even imagine, like, okay, I'm going to wear a wire and I'm going to go talk to my friends.
1: I fantasize about getting to do that at some point in my life, but also, I'm such a bad liar. I would be sweating and just, like, gagging. Be like, hey, guys, what's going on? It
0: would be really hard, especially knowing Mm -hmm. that they're hiding something. Like... She doesn't know either. She doesn't, I don't think she really believed they killed someone. Yeah. But they clearly wanted her to lie. So that would be really, really scary. Cause she's not only friends with them, she was about to go into business with them. Oof. I think they were going to open their own gym or something gym and wedding chapel. <laughs> it's not Vegas,
1: it's still Florida. <laughs> They're like, you guys, we have hit the jackpot with this idea. <laughs> Do you know how many people are asking if they can have their wedding here?
0: At least 12. <laughs> <laughs> When police got a subpoena for Toby's phone records, they also got them for Tracy and Ashley's phone records, thanks to all the evidence they had been gathering. The records solidified that Tracy was indeed home the night of the murders. His cell phone pinged off the tower by his house multiple times, but Ashley's phone pinged the tower near the Green Iguana, Sandy's work. Then it pinged a little bit closer to Sandy's home in Pinellas Park. And then it pinged again just moments after Sandy was shot. And that time it was a tower not even a mile from Sandy's home. Knowing this information about the cell records, police plied Toby with a little bit of information on the phone records so that she could use that in her attempt to speak to the duo while wearing a wire. Cell phone records indicated that she was in Pinellas County at the time of the
1: killing Oh that was one thing that I hoped wasn't true.
0: It showed like two or three times that it was bouncing off, you know, those dark towers. Died. And one of them was right about when she was killed. Oh my god. Okay. What you heard there was a short excerpt from The Wire Toby wore. In it, Toby was explaining to Tracy and Ashley that when she went to the police, she learned that they had their cell phone records and that the records indicated Ashley's phone was near Sandy's house at the time of her death. Tracy then says, that's the one thing I hoped wasn't true in regards to the pings. Toby goes on to tell them more. You can then hear Ashley ask, when she was killed? and then say, oh, my God. Tracy then goes on to comfort her, hugging her, and says, it's all right. So it definitely gave police a uh, pause. They said, yep, they're guilty. They were involved. This was secured even further after speaking to Ashley's stepfather, David Abernathy, who claimed he had lent Ashley a gun a few weeks prior to July 5th. The gun was a Ruger 22 caliber. Ashley had never returned the gun to him. By looking through Tracy's credit card receipts, they found that Tracy had been at a local shooting range, like Toby had mentioned, and the workers from the range confirmed that they witnessed Tracy handling the gun and showing his girlfriend and soon-to-be wife how to load it and how to shoot it. By December of 2003, police felt like they had everything they needed for an arrest. They could get Ashley for being the one who pulled the trigger, but they wanted to get Tracy, and lucky for them, handling a gun while on parole is a big, fat no-no. This meant that he could also be arrested, even if they don't have enough evidence to say he was part of the murder, they could nab him on the parole violation. Exactly. And then continue working. On December 18th, 2004, the duo was picked up at the gym they worked at, you know, where they had their wedding. Their wedding venue, yes. Ashley refused to speak to police, only speaking to say that she didn't know the woman who was murdered, she had nothing to do with it, and then she repeatedly asked for an attorney. So clearly she was coached well there. Mm -hmm. But eventually they read her her rights and arrested her for first degree murder and sent her to the local jail. Though Ashley was steadfast in not admitting guilt and clearly very much in love with her beau Tracy, her lawyer had a plan. Her lawyer knew that the police wanted Tracy on this crime. They didn't have enough evidence to arrest him for murder, so she waited to see if she could convince Ashley to work with the police and make a deal so that Tracy would be the one that took the brunt of the punishment for the crime. Now, she wasn't interested in this plan, but Ashley's lawyer expected this. So she had brought a pile of information. She wanted her to know exactly who that man she married was. So when she first met him, he had told her he was a former Armani model. I mean, what else could you (laughs) be with those muscles? Now, of course, that was a lie. She also showed her that it wasn't just Sandy who claimed Tracy had raped her after they dated. There had been seven other former girlfriends who came forward and claimed he was violent and or raped them as well. They were all going to speak at that trial. She held on fast, though. She did not turn on him. So there was an ace in the hole, thank goodness. Tracy had not only been cheating on Ashley with other women, he had been cheating on her with a man she found out that her beloved male hairdresser, the same man that she would tell all her juicy secrets to when she started dating Tracy, was also dating Tracy. Wow. He claimed Tracy was bisexual and that they had been together multiple times. And that's when Ashley started seeing her lawyer's side of things. She agreed to talk with the state attorney's office, and they were seeking to have Ashley admit guilt in exchange for a reduced sentence If she was willing to turn on Tracy by March 2nd, 2004, Ashley sat down and told them everything. She explained that her husband, Tracy, came up with the entire plan. It had been in motion for weeks. He wanted Ashley to disguise herself in all black clothes, face paint. I'm talking straight up blackface with brown contacts and sneak off to kill Sandy. And that's what she did. She geared up in the dark clothes, even saying in an interview, quote, I looked like a skinny black man. Kind of like the threat that he had given Sandy Uh previously. The plan she followed was to lay in wait in her disguise in her car outside of the green iguana until Sandy got off work. She was supposed to shoot her there in the parking lot, but Ashley fell asleep and woke up. I know (laughs) she fell asleep, but she woke up just in time to see Sandy getting into her car. So she followed her out of the parking lot by car, calling Tracy to give him updates along the way, thus causing those pings that the police found. Eventually, they made it to Sandy's townhome, and Sandy pulled into the garage. Ashley got the gun, turned the safety off, snuck into the garage through the door that Ashley left open, shot through the window, and immediately started pulling the trigger repeatedly, aiming for vital organs. She said that while she did this, she could hear Tracy's voice in her head telling her that she cannot leave her alive or she will speak to the police in the hospital and they'll all get busted. He demanded that she shoot her repeatedly and then look into her eyes to make sure she was really dead. According to him, you could tell when the soul is gone, which is like a creepy little tidbit. Yeah. And How like did he know that? that before? Yeah. Or he's just
1: trying to sound cool and tough or something.
0: Yeah, trying to convince her, like, oh, it's easy. I've done it. Yeah. So, when she was sure that Sandy was dead, she snuck back out the garage door as it was closing. Ashley claimed that if she hadn't have committed this murder, she knew Tracy was going to be abusive to her like he did the last time. What's that? The last time? Apparently, she went on to say that a month prior to when she killed Sandy, she had tried to kill her with a rifle. She, outside the green iguana, shot at Sandy when she was walking outside, but missed her and hit a window. Sandy then, like, ducked and was like, what was that? And Ashley tried to shoot at her again, but the gun jammed. So Sandy ended up leaving, likely never knowing that someone was trying to kill her. After she told them everything, she led investigators to an area where Tracy and her had buried the guns used in both the murder and the attempted murder. Once Ashley told her story, prosecution agreed to reduce her sentence to 25 years if she pled guilty to second-degree murder and testified in court against her husband. This gave them everything they needed to arrest Tracy for being the mastermind of Sandra Razo's murder. On March 20th, just a few weeks later, Tracy was indicted for first-degree murder. Two years later, on Valentine's Day 2006, Tracy's murder trial began. As promised, Ashley took the stand and detailed the plan, the execution, everything. Tracy then ended up taking the stand as well, and he pointed the finger at Ashley, claiming that she had been the one that planned everything to protect him. She wanted to eliminate Sandy so that she would not show up to court for the rape and assault case against Tracy and get him thrown behind bars for 10 years and taken away from her. In the end, the jury took two hours to deliberate, and they ultimately found Tracy Humphrey guilty. He was sentenced to life, true life, absolutely no parole. He, of course, tried to appeal that in 2008, claiming that his cell phone records shouldn't have allowed them to argue what the contents of the calls were. But that was shot down. They're like, sorry, buddy. (laughs) Nice try. Nice try.
1: (laughs) I was trying to order a pizza.
0: A month after Tracy's conviction, Ashley was officially Sentenced to 25 years. So she is living in the Gadsden Correctional Facility in Quincy, Florida. And she's scheduled for release on December 13th, 2028, where she and I will be 46 years old. So she she has a life ahead of her. It's uh, kind of surprising she got that much time. Yeah, I thought it might be I feel like I've, I've
1: seen cases where someone's like, I
0: walked up and shot this person. They're like 10 years. It's Florida, though. They're pretty strict. Yeah, that's true. Like they they were considering death penalty for Tracy. Wow. So Sandra's mother solely blames Tracy. She was quoted in a television show saying, quote, as far as I'm concerned, that day he took two lives. He took my daughter's and he took Ashley's. She then corresponded a little bit with Ashley by letter, even sending her pictures of Sandy and asking her to hang them on the wall so that she would always remember the part she played in her death so that she could keep her life straight moving forward, Wow, which I think is like so above and beyond someone would need to do. Like you can forgive on your own, like if that's yeah for you, but she like w- went out of her way to do something for Ashley, too, which I thought was yeah sweet. Of course, in true Florida man style, Tracy Humphrey did attempt to escape prison while they were transferring him. He managed to get, you know, stay on the lamb for a few hours, but they caught him and then he earned another 15 years for that. But that is being <laughs> served concurrently with his other sentence. Oh, good. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> and it took um, 10 years before Ashley filed for divorce. And she still, oh, I think, interesting. goes by Ashley Humphrey. So she does a lot of television appearances and. Um, I read a book. uh, So if you guys are interested in this case, the book is really good. It's short, easy read, but it has all the details about like what Toby did to get them to talk and all the details about how he manipulated her to help him. Uh, And the author even includes a letter that he sent to Tracy and Tracy's response and a letter he tried to send to Ashley, but she didn't respond. Uh, But that's called Kill for Me by M. William Phelps. There's also you know, snapped if you can find it. There's a YouTube documentary called The Sandra Razo Story. So there's a lot of places you can learn about this. But yeah, I was surprised by I never heard of this one.
1: Yeah. And you have to think too, like, not to read into things because, you know, I obviously don't know anything about them. But it kind of perks my ears a little to be like, oh, so she didn't file for divorce for 10 years, even though she's in the situation she's in because of him. Like, was his grip that strong? Probably. I, and I don't so know. Is of her yeah. life was in, uh, revolving around that? And it kinda gives me pause of yeah, he came up with the idea, but was she so steadfast in her support and like, I'm not gonna let my husband go to jail? You you just have to wonder. And not to discount her saying he was gonna harm me or or, you know, I was being abused. That's not to cancel that out at all. But it's just interesting to think how much of it she had emotion, you know, uh, invested in it to be like, I'm protecting him and, yeah. and I'm not going to let him go to jail. For I mean, this. she was and...
0: barely more than a child when she met him. Yeah. And, you know, his track record is abusing women yeah. and scaring them into it. So I think it's probably a mix. But when they told her that her friend had cheated with him, I think that was over for yeah. her. But I do think there were benefits to being married to him in terms of TV money for her family. Oh, yeah. So. It's hard to say, but then the author also notes that he thinks she got really religious and has, is like looking to redeem herself. Mm-hmm. And that's why she keeps talking about it publicly to be like, listen, I know I know what I did and I apologize for it. and I know it's wrong. So I, she's a very she's a conundrum. Yeah. She's a little mix of everything. Uh, but one of my favorites. So in the in the TV or in the YouTube documentary, I mentioned the Sandra Rosa story. They both talk Ashley and Tracy and Tracy is skinny now. And she says, when she got to court it was shocking because she sat on the stand and said now he's skinny he's not on his steroids he's not working out and he's just like a stick and she's like and I got fat cuz like all I do is I don't work out and I eat. and it was just so funny like I think she realized in that moment they were not the people they said they were you know Yeah they were like putting up a facade Uh-huh of, yeah. both of them Yeah It was a, it was an interesting one
1: Yeah well it's so sad and it's true it's like
0: she didn't have anything against this woman Right It was all him. He could have lied and said she she he did say, oh, she likes me. She's after me.
1: Right. But it's like it's not like this girl was just a danger who was out on the streets, like looking to shoot somebody pulling into their house. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, she really did lose her life before prison and then to prison because of this guy. Yep. Yeah. You got to watch those red flags when too much of your life revolves around or includes someone else or would fall apart without that person, that's a red flag. Oh yeah. And so are gym
0: marriages. <laughs> if you're if your no man offense. wants to get married in a gym, please call us. Please write us and don't do it.
1: And if you are gonna do that, be sure to go to bloated sea cow, Everglade <laughs> Alligator Gym and Wedding Venue.
0: Sponsored by <laughs> Sponsored by Monster. Hey, now how about have a murder in the
1: Rain themed wedding? Oh God. <laughs> We'll show up and uh, officiate. I'm at zero zero for long lasting marriages. (laughs) They've both gotten divorced. So call me. I can't stop thinking about the gym wedding. (laughs) And I'm picturing. So I used to go to Planet Fitness. And for anyone that doesn't know, they they don't give a shit. And on every Wednesday, they would order a pile of Domino's Pizza. So you would be
0: working out. I, and you would smell pizza. I've seen that on Instagram. I follow it's a couple real. of people that work out there, I've and taken they would post. <laughs> That's
1: terrible. And they have bowls of, of tootsie rolls. No. So I'm picturing them getting married at a Planet Fitness. And they're like, "Let's do it on a Wednesday at six. We got free pizza <laughs> for everybody. Everybody. We don't need a cake. We got tootsie rolls. Grab an appetizer. Let's go next Wednesday when the monster drink rep is there too.
0: <laughs> everybody
1: gets free drinks." I'm
0: just picturing oh like, my how God. plan a wedding. Did they dance? Did they just do reps? I'm telling you, it's Zumba. Everyone did Zumba. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, please follow us to the reception room over here. It's the Zumba class. And they lead their own Zumba <laughs> class in their attire. Probably a very like beachy little sundress. And he wore his best gym clothes.
1: because oh, you're way down.
0: Well, down like
1: With pants. Sickness, like what? How's that? Pants. Em, how you, how you sounding over there?
0: The little candy shop collection. I love my milk and magnesia. Taste the rainbow on my balls. <laughs> We're getting back to basics. We're boarding the murder and... Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I think you might have
0: missed four or seven words there.
1: <laughs> Maybe. You might want to go back...
0: Say like a little fun fact. I I, went, I looked up Pinellas Park
1: just now. Okay. And I was like, I wonder, and I put the word porn in. Thousands of results.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thousands. Pornhub has a Pinellas oh. Park, Florida section. Amazing. All right. All right.
1: Oh my god. Um. <laughs> Thing is as big as Florida.
0: <laughs> the 1920s. That was a hundred years ago. Shocking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Time passes, man. It does, man.
1: <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde's car, not in Florida. Detective. <laughs> Take a break. Sip a water. <laughs> sip that water. Sip, sip, that, sip. Water.
0: sip that water. Sip that water. Gotta finish it by noon, sip, I, I think. Water.
1: Murder in the Rain is a Cascade media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain@gmail.com at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore murderinTherain. and check my boss. <laughs>